Bernard of Clairvaux, Apology. By the time Suger was rebuilding the Abbey Church at Saint Denis, a new religious order was attracting attention throughout Europe. The Cistercians began in 1098 when some Benedictine monks, in search of a more rigorous life, settled at Cito. Their monastery attracted a few converts until 1112 when a young nobleman named Bernard persuaded approximately 30 companions, including his uncle and all but one of his brothers, to enter with him. Bernard was the chief spokesman for Cistercian values. Monastic life was to be austere and disciplined. Food, buildings, and even worship were to be kept simple. Monasteries were to be built away from population centers, thus shielding the brothers from distraction and excessive contributions. The Apology is part of a running feud with the Benedictine Abbey of Cluny and its many dependent houses. Cluniac monasticism tended to be more integrated with society than Cistercian. Its houses extended hospitality to travelers, and some Cluniac abbeys were important pilgrimage centers. Thus, abbey churches were often large and sumptuously decorated, their services complex and elaborate. In 1125, William, abbot of St. Thierry, asked Bernard to write something which would defend the Cistercians against the charge of slandering the Cluniacs and, at the same time, criticize Cluniac laxity. The result was the Apology, which begins by condemning self-righteous criticism and then proceeds to ridicule Cluniac excesses in food, clothing, and buildings. But these are minor abuses. I shall go on to major ones, which seem minor because they are so common. I see nothing of the enormous height, extravagant length, and unnecessary width of the churches, of their costly polishings and curious paintings, which catch the worshipper's eye and dry up his devotion, things which seem to me, in some sense, a revival of ancient Jewish rites. Let these things pass. Let us say they are all to the honor of God. Nevertheless, just as the pagan poet Perseus inquired of his fellow pagans, so I, as a monk, ask my fellow monks, Tell me, O pontiffs, he said, what is gold doing in the sanctuary? I say, tell me, poor men, if you really are poor, what is gold doing in the sanctuary? There is no comparison here between bishops and monks. We know that the bishops, debtors to both the wise and unwise, use material beauty to arouse the devotion of a carnal people because they cannot do so by spiritual means. But we who have now come out of that people, we who have left the precious and lovely things of the world for Christ, we who, in order to win Christ, have reckoned all beautiful, sweet-smelling, fine-sounding, smooth-feeling, good-tasting things, in short, all bodily delights, as so much dung, what do we expect to get out of them? Admiration from the foolish, offerings from the ignorant, or, scattered as we are among the Gentiles, 
Are we learning their tricks and serving their idols? I shall speak plainly. Isn't greed a form of idolatry responsible for all this? Aren't we seeking contributions rather than spiritual profit? How, you ask? In a strange and wonderful way, I answer. Money is scattered about in such a way that it will multiply. It is spent so that it will increase. Pouring it out produces more of it. Faced with expensive but marvelous vanities, people are inspired to contribute rather than to pray. Thus riches attract riches and money produces more money. I don't know why, but the wealthier a place, the readier people are to contribute to it. Just feast their eyes on gold-covered relics and their purses will open. Just show them a beautiful picture of some saint. The brighter the colors, the saintlier he'll appear to them. Men rush to kiss and are invited to contribute. There is more admiration for beauty than veneration for sanctity. Thus churches are decorated, not simply with jeweled crowns, but with jeweled wheels illuminated as much by their precious stones as by their lamps. We see candelabra like the big bronze trees, marvelously wrought, their gems glowing no less than their flames. What do you think is the purpose of such things? To gain the contrition of penitents or the admiration of spectators? On vanity of vanities, yet no more vain than insane. The church is resplendent in her walls and wanting in her poor. She dresses her stones in gold and lets her son go naked. The eyes of the rich are fed at the expense of the indigent. The curious find something to amuse them, and the needy find nothing to sustain them. What sort of reverence is shown to the saints when we place their pictures on the floor and then walk on them? Often, someone spits in an angel's mouth. Often, the face of a saint is trampled by some passerby's feet. If sacred images mean nothing to us, why don't we at least economize on the paint? Why embellish what we're about to befoul? Why decorate what we must walk on? What good is it to have attractive pictures where they're usually stained with dirt? Finally, what good are such things to poor men, to monks, to spiritual men? Perhaps the poet's question could be answered with words from the prophet, Lord, I have loved the beauty of your house and the place where your glory dwells. I agree. Let us allow this to be done in churches because even if it is harmful to the vain and greedy, it is not such to the simple and devout. But in cloisters, where the brothers are reading, what is the point of this ridiculous monstrosity, this shapely misshapenness, this misshapen shapeliness? What is the point of those unclean apes, fierce lions, monstrous centaurs, half-men, striped tigers, fighting soldiers, and hunters blowing their horns? In one place, you see many bodies under a single head. In another, several heads on a single body. Here on a quadruped, we see the tail of a serpent. Over there on a fish, we see the head of a quadruped. 
There we find a beast that is horse up front and goat behind. Here another that is horned animal in front and horse behind. In short, so many and so marvelous are the various shapes surrounding us that it is more pleasant to read the marble than the books and to spend the whole day marveling over these things rather than mediating, meditating on the law of God. Good Lord, if we aren't embarrassed by the silliness of it all, shouldn't we at least be disgusted by the expense? And that I may speak openly, doth avarice do all this, which is the service of idols. If you ask how, I wonder how. With such a certain art is money scattered that it is multiplied. It is expended that it may be increased, and profusion produceth further abundance. Indeed, by the very sight of sumptuous but wonderful vanities, men are incited more to give offerings than to pray. Thus riches are drawn from riches, thus money attracteth money. Because I know not how it is, where there is a very ample display of riches, their offerings are made the more gladly. By gold eyes are made to feast on hidden relics, and purses are opened. The beautiful picture of some holy man or woman is made a show of, and the more richly it is decorated, the more holy it is deemed to be. Men rush to kiss it. They are induced to present gifts. They admire its beauty rather than venerate its sacredness. Then also there are placed in a church, not coronals, but wheels, all jeweled, surrounded with lights, but not the less refulgent themselves with inlaid gems. We see too, instead of candelabra, certain tall trees, weighty with brass, fashioned with the marvelous labor of the artificer, and not more gleaming with the lamps placed upon them than with their own jewels. What, thinkest thou, is sought in these things? The contrition of penitence or the admiration of onlookers? Oh, vanity of vanities, but not more vain than foolish. The church hath resplendent walls, and yet hath not the poor. It hath its stones clad with gold, and leaveth its sons unclad. At the cost of the needy, it gratifieth the eyes of the wealthy. The curious find that which delighteth them, but the poor find nothing with which life can be supported. Why at least do we not treat with reverence the images of the saints, with which the very pavement trodden underfoot everywhere aboundeth? Often there is spitting into an angel's mouth. Often the face of a saint is bruised by the heels of those who walk over it. If you do not spare the sacred figures, why do you not spare the beautiful colors? Why decorate what is soon to be defiled? Why color that which of necessity must be trodden underfoot? Of what use are the lovely forms, there where they are continually stained with dust? What service at least do such things render to the poor, to monks, to spiritual men? We indeed suffer things to be done in a church, which are mo both hurtful to the vain and the avaricious, and devoid of use for the simple and devout. Again, what good doth that ridiculous monstrosity do 
to the brothers reading in the cloister. That deformed beauty, that beautiful deformity, so wonderful to look at. Why there the filthy apes? Why the monstrous centaurs? Why the half-human figures? Why the spotted tigers? Why the fighting soldiers? Why the horn-blowing hunters? You may see there under one head many bodies, and again on one body many heads. Here is seen on a quadruped the tail of a serpent, there on a fish the head of a quadruped. There a beast in front like a horse is dragging behind it the half of a goat. Here a horned creature in the hinder part is a horse. In short, so many things and such a marvelous variety of diverse forms everywhere appareth that there would be more diversion to read the marbles than the parchments, in taking a whole day in admiring them one by one, than in meditating upon the law of God. Alas, if there is not shame at such foolish things, why is there not grief at their costliness?